Turn with me now to Genesis chapter 46. I'm going to read verses 1 through 8. Genesis 46, 1 through 8. So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. Then God spoke to Israel in the vision of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, Here I am. So he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not fear to go down to Egypt, for I will make of you a great nation there. I will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also surely bring you up again. And Joseph will put his hand on your eyes. Then Jacob arose from Beersheba, and the sons of Israel carried their father Jacob, their little ones and their wives, and the carts which Pharaoh had sent to carry him. So they took their livestock and their goods which they had acquired in the land of Canaan and went to Egypt. Jacob and all his descendants with him, his sons, all his sons' sons, his daughters and his sons' daughters, and all his descendants he brought with him to Egypt. Now these were the names of the children of Israel, Jacob and his sons who went to Egypt, Reuben, was Jacob's firstborn. May the Lord bless this reading and our good understanding of it. The title of the sermon this morning is True Success. And I'm thinking of success in the in the broader fashion here. In all the on all I write in the notes of the sermon down below, in all the midst in the midst of all the affairs of this world, we're tempted with many plans to reach success. In this tale, we see the patriarch of Israel, the great-grandfather, if you will, reversing, revising, um, I'm sorry, reversing all his previous steps to reach and develop his family's life, new new life in in Israel, it should be Egypt. God teaches Jacob, uh, Israel, to wait, and he sees that he is God, and see that he is God, depend on the Lord, and he will take care of the end or final success of our family. So the, I, I'm thinking here in terms of us as we reflect on our families and our lives, and each of us has different providences. You know, each of us, we could go down and give a vignette of our family, where we are, just where the Lord has brought us, where we were, where we were 100 years ago, our family, where we are today, and where we're going in the future. And we, as we think about these things, we might think, well, what does it, what does it mean to have family success? Uh, how will we know that our family has really counted for something long term? These were the kinds of things that were going through Jacob's mind, or Joseph's, uh, Jacob's mind, as he, as they tra- traversed through this harsh famine, and then he finds out that his son Joseph was not killed, but he is that he survived in Egypt. Not only has he survived, but he has flourished, and God has blessed him so that he's like a king uh, in in Egypt. And it's just extraordinary. And here Jacob was living in a kind of depressed time of his life, where it seemed like there was, as he looked at his family and the famine that was all about him, 
he he looked down and it seemed like there was dissolution, that there was destruction, that there was the things were breaking down. And now he's heard that uh, that God was working behind the scenes in an unseen way with this son that he thought had been killed at Joseph, and now he's supposed to go to Egypt. And as he as he considers going to Egypt, we see him here in verse one. He goes as far as Beersheba. Now you know Beersheba is a famous city in Israel because it's the southernmost city. That's where there were some springs. There was water there. It was a rather arid place. But in Beersheba, there were springs, and people could live there. There was water. And so of all the cities of Israel, Beersheba was the last fertile, life-sustaining port. It wasn't on the sea, but it was a a land port. And and, uh, so they stopped there. And we can just imagine how Jacob's mind was working God, you've promised me and you've promised my father and my father's father, Abraham. You promised us that you would make of us a great nation. And yet here we are, there's a famine upon the land. And uh, and uh, Joseph, we found out about Joseph. We found out that there's a way to live. But do I really dare to go to Egypt? Egypt has symbolized for us Israelis. Israel, uh, Egypt has symbolized for us uh, uh, the greatest power in the ancient world that was right on our doorstep, in a sense. And it's always been symbolic of threat and paganism. It's, a, it's symbolic of that which raising up a new nation of Israel is supposed to stand against. And yet now you're calling me to go. And at this point, he had been called through the voice of Joseph and the, and the voice of the famine. Remember, he didn't even want his sons to leave, to go back down to Egypt to get food because um, they, they, were so, they felt so threatened by um, Egypt before they found out that Joseph was the one who was speaking to them. And so it was only when the famine got so great that they were on the edge of starvation that then the, the boys say, we've got to go, or, or, Jake, or Joseph, Jacob said, we've got to go. And the boys were sent back down with their their younger brother, Benjamin. They discovered all of this about Joseph being alive. But you see what a vortex of judgment or apparent judgment that God was taking Israel. And contrasted with all that was symbolic about this land that they were in now, the land of Canaan, the land of Israel, it seemed like going to Egypt was a reversal of everything that God had promised. And so Jacob stops before he leaves this land. Now, they had not yet claimed Beersheba. Uh, I I believe Jacob had some inkling of the dimensions of the land before that. He'd been shown by God. But they they were nowhere near prosperous enough or populous enough to have claimed distant cities like uh, Beersheba in the south or Dan in the north. But uh, Jacob stops there and offers up sacrifices to his God. Here we see the piety of Jacob, that uh, while he had not read the letters of Paul or heard of the Gospels of our Lord Jesus Christ, he was a man who was deeply convicted by the Spirit of God for ordering his life and for focusing upon the great things, the great dimensions of his life as God had shown them to him. So he stops there. And Beersheba, 
He's leaving everything, as I say in the sermon outline. He's leaving everything. What will become of him? And so um, the first thing we want to note here is that this is how God often works with us psychologically. We do not, as people of flesh and blood, we do not desire to go through times of, of want, especially great times of want, like a famine or, or a time of tragedy. We, these are things that we pray that we would avoid. Lead us not into temptation, we pray in the Lord's Prayer, but deliver us from evil. And so these are not things that we want, but we see here that God often brings his people through these things, and it's not a sign that he's abandoned them. It's a sign that he's going to work with them through these difficulties. It seems like God works with us best when we are somewhat psychologically shaken, when we are vulnerable mentally and spiritually, and we don't have a lot of confidence in the flesh. The Spirit seems to work the best, and the Spirit is most prosperous when the flesh is most weak. And so here's Jacob. He is uh, on the, the edge of leaving everything that he thinks that God has pointed out to, namely, this, this building up this nation uh, in Israel, and, um, and uh, God is calling them to leave. And uh, we can just ask ourselves, do, uh, where are we in our families? Do we think of our families in a theological perspective? Do we meditate upon that? Do we take our families like Job did before the Lord? and pray about the future of our families, the prosperity of our families, because that's what was in Jacob's mind. Jacob was concerned. God had made these fantastic promises to him, and now it seems like he's on the edge of walking away from those and walking in, the, in, a, in an opposite direction. And we can often feel these things in our lives. We, as, as life makes sense to us, we say we should go this way. We say the development of our lives and our families ought to be in this direction, and yet God, is, God seems to be taking us in a different direction. We can be looking at this today for our children and our children's children, because uh, in America, it seems like in some senses, the nation is pointed toward an Egyptian kind of captivity here. Should we really bring children into the world? when we see the kind of awful reactions that we see in people today, uh, uh, almost causing a riot. You know, in, the, in, the, in Nashville, the, the protesters, they entered into the state house there and into the chambers while they were meeting. You, if you saw it on TV this past week, now not a lot of stations showed this because it doesn't show the, the, uh, um, the world culture operating all that nicely. They're quick to show us the scenes of Jan January 6th, but slow to show us scenes of the Nashville State House being invaded. But these are the kinds of crazy things. I know when I stood out on the street uh, earlier in my life protesting for uh, the babies and pro-life and anti-abortion, I remember the, how my, my sensitivities were kind of convulsed by knowing that I was doing something that was so much against what the culture, the general culture around me indicated. I felt like a stranger, and yet I did it because I felt like God was calling me to do it. 
But here are these people, they're protesting not for righteousness sake, not for something that's revealed in the word of God, but they're actually going in and, can you imagine going into Columbus, into the state house there, and while they were meeting, and going in and shouting and having signs and causing chaos and being forced out of the building finally. Can you imagine that? Well, that's the kind of world we are being born into now and we're bringing our children into now. Should we be overwhelmed by this? Should we be intimidated? Shall we, should we stop what God has commanded us to do and marrying and having children and these kinds of things? Could, should we really be so frightened that we stop doing what God has told us to do? Well, these are the kinds of things that Jacob was challenged with. And we see that he's following along. At this point, he was simply following the powers of providence. This famine had forced them off their land. Now the providence of God had raised up this green light, this open door to Egypt. And so Jacob was taking his family out. Now, as I said, he paused in Beersheba to set to, to bring blood sacrifices to God. He knew that that's what he, he knew. He deserved death and all of his people deserved death. But God had made a promise to him. So he, he made these sacrifices. Well, as he slept that night, then at the end of verse two, uh, it says, then God spoke to Israel. And it's interesting. It's it, now as they're going to the, the nation of Egypt. God in the text is calling Jacob Israel now repeatedly. Israel, Israel, Israel. He calls him, uh, uh, when he, when he, except when the, the dream comes, then he calls, reverts back to Jacob. But we see how God is, God is uh, he, Jacob knew that his name had been changed to Israel, but he kind of went with both, depending on the circumstances. Uh, here he is, he's heading to Egypt, and it says God spoke to him in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. Now, we know in Hebrew that one of the ways that God really puts a highlighter on any occasion in the Bible is when he addresses a person by, by their name, with their, using their name, their name twice. When uh, Saul, the Pharisee, was persecuting the church, and it was the, on the eve of his conversion, and he was on the road to Damascus, trying to get writs of arrest for more Christians in different dis distant places. God comes to Saul, and uh, he's walking on the road, and God, God calls to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Whenever a name is doubled like this, Abraham, Abraham, there are a number of occasions in the Bible. Whenever God called unto his people and repeated their name twice, you knew it was a, it was a, a signal from God that there was a highly significant conversation or a bit of information that God was going to convey. So here we see that with, with Jacob. And he calls out verse, verse 2, uh, Jacob, Jacob. And uh, Jacob said, here I am. He knew the voice of God. I pray, brothers and sisters, that you know the voice of God. Ultimately, in, in such tumultuous times as we live, such revolutionary times in many cases. If we don't understand the voice of the Lord, then we are really lost. We have no compass. For us, the voice of the Lord comes in the scriptures. Jacob recognized the voice of the Lord. He said, here I am God. Um, and God said, I am God, the God of your father. You notice the way God, God has worked here in providence with these people. 
He's worked with Abraham. He's worked with Jacob, or Isaac, and he worked with Jacob. He told them that, that he would bless them and their children and their children's children. But he works methodically and in these ways so that when he says here, I am God, the God of your father, uh, do not fear to go down to Egypt, for I will make of you a great nation down there. So he does two things here. He seeks to resolve Jacob's fear, and then he gives him a real positive pointer to the things that will develop. So he does, he takes, he tries to take away the negative. He tries to install the positive. <clears throat> and um, and um, these, this is really wonderful because uh, at such times as these, we can be frightened. We, we normally are frightened. When any, when any time in our lives we're uncertain about what we should do, that, that uncertainty tends to undo us. It tends to take the, the, the solid ground out from underneath our feet. And so in this case, God uh, tenderly speaks to Jacob. And I couldn't help but seeing, as God deals with Jacob, I couldn't help seeing that this is the way the Lord Jesus Christ does with us. And, and the kind of tenderness that God uses to address Jacob we have the same kind of picture in the Bible presented with the way our Lord Jesus deals with us. And uh, these, are, these things are meant to incite us and to inspire us to great confidence. And so here he is working with, uh, with uh, Jacob in that way. So he says to Jacob, uh, <clears throat> uh, do not fear going down to Egypt. So he didn't tell Jacob all the particulars he didn't tell Jacob how long they would be there, but he takes away the main fear, the central fear that might be in Jacob's mind. I am not taking you off of this course which I had set your father and your, your grandfather and your father before you. You may be somewhat confused about it. You may not know all. You may not have all the knowledge of what's happening to you. But the, in the big picture, I, you are fitting surely into the course, the pilgrimage that I've set before you. That's the main thing. We don't need to know everything about our lives. We don't need to know, well, you know, whether it's going to, whether we're going to have a cold winter or a warm spring. Only let us understand, Lord, that we are in your will. And that where we are going, the general course that we're upon is your way. That is enough for us. And so, uh, in, in some sense, that's what God does here with Jacob. He tells him not to fear to go down to Egypt. So Jacob, from this point on, would know that whatever took place before him, that he that it was not meant for their destruction, but for their construction. That things were going to work out. That, the, that they were going to be built up. And then he says, uh, don't, don't fear going down for the, on the positive side, I will make of you a great nation there. Now, as he, as he talks about the multitude of the people of Jacob in the next part of the text, we see it was a, it was a significant group of people, 70 people that went down together. But we know from the rest of the scriptures that when they came out of Egypt, they numbered in the millions. An amazing change. <laughs> I mean, when you think about it, it's just astounding. We can see how God works in the big picture. But for these people at that time, for Jacob, it was simply, it would have been simply astounding. 
he was impressed to say in some senses with the numbers that were going down to Egypt now. But uh, it was in Egypt that they would be in a kind of incubator and God would make them a great nation. I mentioned before, <clears throat> the last couple of weeks before this, that if they had been living in Israel, then as they'd grown stronger, they, their enemies along the borders probably would have been jealous and they, they probably would have been provoked to ongoing wars as they saw Israel uh, embellished in power and growth and, and uh, riches. But in this sense, God sprang an amazing surprise upon not only the Canaanite neighbors of Israel, but upon the whole world. God incubated this nation in secret in Egypt for a number of generations until their numbers had increased to the, to the low millions. And it's simply an astounding thing. The, the New York Times and the Washington Post, they love to cover the world as if what they see is what's going on. And in the ancient world, I'm sure this was the case also with the, the different nations and the way the information spread. And it's just astounding here. And I, I have not really heard it preached upon very often about what a surprise this was in terms of the world politics of the day. These people, 70 in number, went down to Egypt, they settled in the land of Goshen, and then a couple of generations later, God has blessed them amazingly with children and numbers. Uh, it was like the, the, the womb of Israel became so fecund and so fertile that these people, these children poured out, and so the people grew and grew and grew, and uh, no one really noticed except the Egyptians who were angry uh, about the, 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 this people and they just enslaved them more and more until God came and with his mighty hand uh, put his smack the land of Egypt and, and forced them to give up this people and so they crossed the Red Sea <laughs> in their hundreds of thousands and low millions they crossed the Red Sea amazing story of the providence of God. And this is what God consoles Jacob with, at least in germ, at least in seed, on this night when he gives him these revelatory dreams. Now, <clears throat> now one of the things, when he, when he directs him, in his, the second part of that verse, where he says that he will bring him up, um, he'll make, a great, great, make of them a great nation, he says, I will go down with you to Egypt, and I will bring you up again, and Joseph will put his hand on your eyes. God is reassuring Jacob here of the future. Now, the, the technical word for that in theology and philosophy is teleology. Telos in Greek, the word telos is the word for end. And so uh, when, you, when you consider how things will develop or how they'll come out at the end, then you use or you study this idea of teleology. How things will develop. Uh, are things developing toward any common purpose or toward any common end? That's a very powerful concept in life and in thinking. And so in this case, when God tells Jacob that he's going to make of him a great nation, uh, I, I'm going to go down with you to Egypt and I'm going to bring you up, out, he's assuring Jacob of the future. He's assuring Jacob of how this will all end up. And if we know how things will end up, it makes it all the while worthwhile 
that we go through whatever struggles we go through if we know where it will end up. Now, you notice how the whole of the scriptures, in this sense, are teleological, aren't they? The whole of the scriptures tell us that we will end up in heaven with eternal fellowship with God, that though we, like Stephen, might be crushed, might be stoned to death, that that will be a small thing because we will go and immediately be with the Lord in heaven. And our people, despite the fact that we are taken out with stones, our people will flourish. Indeed, Israel, the church, will flourish. And it will fill the whole earth, ultimately, the Bible says. Now, you see, God is, God is consoling us, and he's enthusing us with these thoughts of the future. God wants our minds to be possessed with a big picture. He wants us to know where things will end up. And that's what he's touching Jacob's mind with on this occasion. And you and I as families, we need this too because our lives our lives are like a meandering stream. You know how some of the, especially here in Ohio, where the, the land is pretty flat, the, the streams don't tend to rush in a straight line. They go here and they go there. And the, the Mississippi River that runs down the middle of the country, uh, unbelievable twists and turns as it heads toward the Gulf of Mexico. That's the way our lives are. But how will they end up? What is the end of this meandering? And you and I can wonder about that in our families. I wonder about it. I wonder, where, where, where are you taking me, O oh Lord? Maybe I'm, I tend to be more philosophical. I wonder about those things all the time. You probably hardly ever worry about that, but Canodal really worries about that. I, I think about that. God says, Canodal, be still and know that I and God, as he works these things out. So that's what he gave to, to Jacob. Now, the last thing we see here is that um, uh, in verse 5, 5 to 8, or 5, and five 6, and 7, uh, it says, then, then Jacob arose from Beersheba. So he, with his heavenly vision, he gathers himself together, and they, they head out. You notice, first of all, it says that the sons, with his sons, and they carried their father Jacob, their little ones, their wives, in the carts which Pharaoh had sent to carry him. Again, the marvelous providences of God, how God had sent carts north. It was Pharaoh's idea. God had worked with this pagan king. He didn't need to convert Egypt to use them and to work with them. God does not need to convert everybody here in this world to get his purposes accomplished. He can do it simply by the persuasions of the Spirit. And so, in this case, Pharaoh and Egypt gave carts to Jake, to, to, the, to the sons of Jacob as they went north. They, they got their father and their wives and the little ones, and they brought them in these carts. They had them not before. God knew ahead of time what they would need. He knew that they didn't have the power to create all these carts and things like that at the time because they were concerned with being herdsmen and shepherds there in Canaan. But they, they, all of God's provision showed up for Israel at the door by surprise. And they took them and they brought them and they, they, they put them, packed up their whole lives. And they headed uh, back down to Egypt with them. That says, Jacob and all of his descendants with him, his sons and his sons' sons, his daughters, his sons' daughters, and all his descendants he brought with him to Egypt. Now, I'm not going, going to go into all the names below, but we see the multitude as they're described by God below here. And it really is amazing because in the book of Genesis, we've been focusing on a lot of the struggles of this family, of uh, the, the rape of Dinah and uh, 
the, the, the sun's being attacked here, battles and things like this. We've, we've looked at all of these things. And yet, through all of these twists and turns, this meandering river of time, the, God has built up this family to number 70 as they go out. And last of all, he numbers the, the numbers of, or numbers the children of, of Jacob, I mean of Joseph, uh, in verse 26 and 27. And uh, he, counts, he, he counts the children of Joseph, even though they were not, they were not yet uh, uh, engrafted into the visible Israel, as it were. These were the, the, the sons that Asenath, his wife, had granted him. They, they were probably, they were, extant, they were alive at that time. But he, I love the way he counts, he gets to 66 people. And then he, then he turns and he counts Joseph, because Joseph was, Joseph was not in Israel but he was in Israel, wasn't he? He was out of the land of Israel at the time, but he was part of the Israel of Israel. And so God, God and the scripture counts him too. So they get to 70 people. And I was thinking to myself here, as I read that, I'm thinking, well, uh, if I count my own family, my own immediate family, I've got uh, the Chris Canoto family, that's four, and there's the, the Dick Canoto family here in, uh, in Westchester, and uh, I guess I can stretch out north and, and count my, my other son's family up in Michigan. There, but with, with, those th- with those three pods of family, there's, there's only, only 10 of us. So what has God done with Dick Canodal in, in his lifetime? 10. What did God do with Jacob <laughs> or with, with Jacob during his lifetime? 70. I mean, that's, that's 70 times, seven times. What, what what God has done with me, and you look at yourself, and you know the the if you as you look at these uh, families as it develops, some of the ki- some of the families within this larger family had a had a lot of people. There were I see in the verse uh, verse verse fifteen there are uh, uh, there are thirty three family the thirty three people associated with uh, Leah and uh, the first few sons of of uh, Jacob as they came through Leah. And then I see 16 and 14 and 7. Sometimes it just mentions one. One of the children it just mentions one other person or two other people. So God works in mysterious ways. He, he you know, what, what is blessing in one case is not a curse in another, but it's just different how the way the, way the Lord works with us. But, but in, in, in aggregate, it's wonderful. 70 people. Now, to me, if I had, if I had, if, if the family of Dick Canodal today, if I could count 70 people, I would be crowing, believe me. <laughs> I'd think, wow, this is really something. Um, but uh, this is Israel and not Canodal, you know. God has his purposes for the way he develops these things. And what we see is that in just a short time, that's unbelievable, in just a short time, these 70 people are going to grow. This 70 was not the zenith. This is, this is just the beginning of the journey for them. They were going to have more and more babies, more and more babies. You know, today, as the sociologists look upon the country, they see all of these difficulties. They see, they, they see chaos at the doorstep of our nation. We're, we're aborting so many, we're still aborting so many children, you know, and the, the unbelievers... They they want to they want to revolt against the Lord. They don't want to bear children. They have their own views of eschatology and teleology, and then what they see in the future is no good. 
But what do I see? I see that the Christian people in the country still have hope. We may have some different denominations. We may have some different theologies. Uh, but uh, uh, we're, we're, we're having children. We see that families in this church that are younger and have, have children. So we see back there at the Jordans, you see your you kids sitting there, and you're part of this, you're part of this ongoing, growing group of people. And uh, if your dad and mom keep teaching you right, then you'll probably, when you get married, you'll want to have children. Here, Kaya and Caden uh, uh, here in the front, uh, they're part of the children of the church. And, you know, they, they kind of you giggle right now at the idea of being married or having children. Caden um, especially just can't fathom it at this point. You know, he's, still, he's, he's worried about running his next race, not about trying to keep some woman happy in his household. But God is thinking about this, and God is working, and God is working with us. And God wanted Jacob on this occasion to know that the future looked bright. And I think in America here, that I, you know, about the half the country is heading to a uh, head-on crash with a, a concrete wall. But underneath that, uh, there are people that are disregarding all the negativity, all the false faith, all the false gospels. They're, what do they do? They're just focusing on the Lord and themselves and, and uh, trying to live their lives wholly before the Lord. And it's, <laughs> you know what's going to happen? Uh, some of you kids are going to be buying up the houses of the, on the, of the wicked at a really cheap price. <laughs> they're working. They're working like, like Pharaoh in Egypt. And, they, and Egypt is going to provide us with carts and with blessings. Just because we have faith to keep going, we can focus on what's important. We know what the root of true success is. It's following the Lord. Not worrying so much about all the things that are going on around us. We just follow the Lord, do the stupid things, let the Lord worry about the big picture. I, I, I just, I think it's a wonderful, wonderfully encouraging idea. And it's so tender that the Lord would be concerned about Jacob and what he's thinking about his fears on this occasion. That he comes to him in this dream and he communicates and he inspires him to be the patriarch that he was called to be. Let's close in prayer. Our Father and our God, we pray, make us a people like this. Give us a sense of faith. Today the world laughs at us. They, they disdain us for bending our knees to thee, O Lord. They hold us in contempt that we would do things like tithe and spend our, church, our, our one day each week worshiping thee. They laugh at us. They deride us. Oh, Lord, we pray as we sang already in Psalm 44, we pray that thou wouldst work with us, though, that thou wouldst shame the, the unwise, that thou wouldst shame the ungodly by the success of thy people. Bless us, O oh Lord, as you bless Jacob and his children and his children's children. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.